Welcome to UpToDate's new clinical podcast series based on a new product, UpToDate Pathways. UpToDate Pathways have been developed for use at the point of care to help clinicians make diagnostic or management decisions for common medical problems. Each pathway focuses on answering a specific question for which supporting evidence is evolving or complex. Using these dynamic workflow tools, the clinician responds to key decision nodes, which lead to optimal management for a specific patient. In these podcasts, an up-to-date clinician expert who assisted in the development of the related pathway will discuss some of the challenges clinicians face in making the best care decisions. Today, we'd like to focus on management of anticoagulation for patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Our discussant is Dr. Mark Estes, Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine and Director of the New England Cardiac Arrhythmia Center at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Estes is an Editor-in-Chief in Cardiovascular Medicine at UpToDate. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, a General Internist and Senior Deputy Editor at UpToDate. So we're absolutely delighted you can join us today, Dr. Estes. Well, thank you, Nancy. I appreciate the opportunity to contribute. So we're going to start by identifying the five or so things that a clinician might not be doing optimally in managing patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. But first, why don't we just very clearly identify what we mean when we refer to non-valvular atrial fibrillation? It's a very good starting point, Nancy, and I think it's um, best to define non-valvular heart disease for clinicians by what it excludes. And it excludes three things, mechanical heart valves, rheumatic mitral stenosis, and decompensated valvular heart disease. If clinicians remember those three things, mechanical heart valves, rheumatic mitral stenosis, and decompensated valvular heart disease that are excluded from that definition, everything else is included in non-valvular heart disease. So even though you have a little bit of valvular heart disease like mitral regurgitation, you're still considered non-valvular AF for the purposes of anticoagulation. Is that, is that what we're saying? That's correct. Also, mild to moderate aortic stenosis does not take you out of this patient population. Okay, great. So I had uh, referred earlier to some pitfalls that we'll focus our discussion about and the ones that we identified here in terms of things that clinicians might not be doing optimally in um, taking care of patients with nonvalvular atrial fibrillation are fail to anticoagulate a patient when it is appropriate, assume that anticoagulation is not needed or contraindicated for a patient with a stent who's currently receiving dual antiplatelet therapy, not be aware of contraindications to specific anticoagulants, uh, be they direct oral anticoagulants or warfarin, Avoid using the direct oral anticoagulants because of concerns about reversibility issues or not know how to transition a patient when appropriate from warfarin to a DOAC or vice versa. Do those sound like reasonable things that are stumbling blocks for physicians? They do indeed. These are common dilemmas uh, where physicians feel uncomfortable with the information and the decision-making. So I think there are five very good focal points. Okay, so let's uh, address these one by one. Uh, anticoagulation is appropriate for many, but not for all, patients with nonvalvular AF. What individual risk factors should be evaluated regarding uh, risk for anticoagulation use? Yeah, a good, a good starting point. And it's been made simpler by a risk stratification uh, for stroke uh, known as the CHADS-VASC. Familiar to most clinicians, but briefly, it looks at heart failure, blood pressure, age, diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, 
uh, and gender uh, to risk stratify on a scale of zero all the way up to nine. And with that CHADS-VAS score, it's the starting point for every clinical encounter of a patient with atrial fibrillation with a physician. You should always objectively get a CHADS-VAS score, easily done either from memory or from one of many algorithms that are available, not just on up-to-date, but on many handheld devices. Right. So uh, up-to-date has a, a easily accessible calculator to input the patient data. And so you get a score, as you say, ranging from zero to nine. What's the threshold for who should be anticoagulated and who doesn't need to be? Well, a very clearly defined threshold is a CHADS-VAS score of two. Uh, in individuals with CHADS-VAS score of two or greater, the annual risk of stroke accelerates from 2.2% all the way up to 12% at a CHADS-VAS score of nine. So a, a very clear threshold is two. A group in which there is some judgment is individuals with a CHADS-VAS score of one, in whom the risk of stroke is only uh, about 0.6% per year. Increasingly, with the lower bleeding risk patients, our European colleagues are tending to put CHADS-VASC-1 patients on uh, DOAC. In the United States, we are shifting in that direction, but it's a matter of discretion. But increasingly, I think you'll see the trends in the United States to carefully consider the benefits and risk in CHADS-VASC-1 and I'm certainly in my practice doing it more and more. So when you talk about bleeding risks, we're, we're concerned mostly about intracranial bleeding. Is that correct? That's certainly the one that physicians put at the top of the list of concerns because that's many times debilitating or fatal. Do you have a discussion with patients about how they prioritize risk for bleeding versus risk for a stroke if they don't go on anticoagulation? I do indeed. And in fact, uh, what I do in my practice after the initial history and physical is I literally go over the CHADS-VAS score with them and give them their annual risk of stroke. And of course, you know, look at that over a period of 10 years and 20 years. And in many of these patients, it becomes quite compelling. For example, the CHADS-VAS score of two, you've got a 2.2% annual risk of stroke. But over a decade period, that's going to be about a one in five chance. So at the same time, I think that there's sufficient data based on a number of risk stratification for bleeding, that the physician should really go over the risk of bleeding with the patients too. The most commonly used one, and again, it's available on an algorithm uh, on up-to-date, the HasBled score, very easily done, frequently committed to memory, looks at hypertension, abnormal liver or renal function, prior stroke, a bleeding tendency. If they've been on Cuban at a uh, label INR, over age 65, and or if they're on drugs like aspirin, this is like the CHADS-VAS score, has a good evidence base to it, uh, derived retrospectively from large cohorts of patients, but prospectively validated. So the HasBled score also will give you a score, and that score goes from zero, a risk of about 1% per year of major bleeding, all the way up to a score of four or higher, in which the risk gets up to be about 8%. So a starting point is CHADS-VASC, HasBled, and then a discussion with the patient about risk and benefits based on objective evidence. Okay, so what about patients who have a stent and are taking dual antitherapy and find they have new atrial fibrillation? Are they candidates for anticoagulation, or can we assume that they already have sufficient protection? Yes, it's an important question, and patients taking dual antiplatelet therapies after stents are not adequately protected against stroke if they develop atrial fibrillation. And they need 
an oral anticoagulant, uh, one of the DOACs or warfarin. And in that setting, uh, there are really very specific guidelines on the up-to-date website about transitioning people or combining dual antiplatelet therapy with oral anticoagulant therapies. And it's very dependent upon uh, the type of stent, uh, whether drug-eluting or bare metal, or whether it's an acute coronary syndrome or an elective stent. So there are very specific guidelines that are uh, put forth in the up-to-date website for that specific scenario that I'd refer the reader to. Okay, but the bottom line is, yes, they do need some form of anticoagulation for some period of time. They definitely need an oral anticoagulant, either one of the DOACs or warfarin, with adjustment in the dual antiplatelet therapy, but some antiplatelet therapy is needed as well. So for now, being on a dual antiplatelet therapy regimen is not an absolute contraindication to anticoagulation with warfarin, but it should be done cautiously. That's correct. And importantly, too, there are some people who are at very low risk of bleeding and whom it may be appropriate to continue warfarin, aspirin, and clopidogrel for a period of at least six months if they're very low risk of bleeding. So a minimum of one month, a maximum of six months uh, in these individuals. And these decision makings are nuanced and they are evidence-based and are best looked at in the context of the individual patient. Okay, so uh, moving on and assuming that we have a patient who we identified as a uh, candidate for anticoagulation, what factors should go into the choice of whether to use one of the newer direct oral anticoagulants or DOAX uh, versus warfarin? Well, very good question. And indeed, uh, I think with the available evidence now from four separate agents, uh, including obviously dibigatran, a direct thrombin inhibitor, and three factor 10A inhibitors, that the efficacy compared to warfarin of each of these agents is equal or superior, and the major bleeding is lower. So in individuals in whom one's initiating anticoagulant therapy, uh, most experts would agree that initiating uh, one of the DOACs is preferred to warfarin. However, if a patient's been stable on warfarin and has uh, had not had difficulty maintaining the INR in the therapeutic range, continuing a patient on, on warfarin is very reasonable and uh, you know, is certainly considered to be best clinical practices as well. So there's a cost issue. Is, is that a factor? It has been a factor. It's decreasingly a factor as insurers in the United States are now moving to DOACs in a second tier. And what about concerns of reversibility for the DOACs? Uh, yes, it's, a, it's an important consideration. Clinically, uh, what we have found is that the uh, need to acutely reverse these agents is really very, very limited. Um, trauma, major surgery, in almost all instances, one has the ability to uh, withhold a, a dose of the DOAC for a single drug half-life. Which is how long? Well, it's variable. Uh, for uh, most of these drugs, uh, 12 hours is very adequate. Even for ribaroxaban, which has once daily dosing, most of the effect is gone in 12 hours. One of the drugs, uh, dibigatran, now has a reversal agent. This reversal agent has been used in clinical investigation with very, very impressive safety and efficacy data. And it may be a consideration for the individual physician and patient making a decision about which agent to go on. But the frequency with which that reversal agent has been used is extremely low in clinical practice. 
And overall, the bleeding risk is somewhat lower for DOAX than for warfarin. Isn't, isn't that what we found? Major bleeding, particularly intracranial bleeding, is lower. The frequency of minor bleeding, uh, particularly GI bleeding, is slightly higher for three of the drugs. Uh, with apixaban, uh, the frequency of major and minor uh, bleeding, including GI bleeding, is lower than with warfarin based on the available evidence. So you've been discussing you know, the four available DOAX. Is there reason to choose one over another if you're going to put a patient on, on a DOAX? There's no clear, compelling reason to use one over the other. I think that physicians should get familiar with the advantages and disadvantages of, of each of them. And for physicians who don't use these drugs frequently, get very comfortable with one of them, uh, the pharmacokinetics, pharmacogenetics, uh, the drug interactions, uh, monitoring uh, if the patients have to come off of uh, therapy for a short period of time. But at this point, there is no clear advantage of one over the other. And uh, which of them are once daily? Uh, the ribaroxavan is a once daily uh, dosing. Uh, the others require twice daily dosing. And is there any monitoring that is needed for these drugs? No. There's no clinical monitoring uh, that's needed, and that's an advantage, uh, and that patients are not inconvenienced by INRs, that the impact on their quality of life and the costs associated with it. The disadvantage is that one really doesn't have a good clinical assessment of compliance. So, especially for twice daily dosing, you have to be pretty comfortable that your patient's going to take the drug as, as you're prescribing it. That's particularly true when you're considering things like using anticoagulation for four consecutive weeks before doing a cardioversion, a single missed dose of uh, one of the DOACs, and you could be at higher risk for stroke. So it is something that you need to be extremely mindful of in dealing with the individual patients. But in the context of patients understanding that the compliance is a critical issue for stroke prevention, we generally find if the patients are well-educated that they're extremely compliant because uh, they understand the potential risk of missing a dose. Okay, so I think you alluded to it, but uh, let's talk in a little more detail. For patients who are doing well on warfarin, leave well enough alone, but for a patient whose INR is very volatile um, and you want to transition them to a DOAC or want to think about doing that, uh, how do you go about doing that? Well, once again, I'd refer uh, clinicians to uh, UpToDate and, and because there are some, there's some variation in it. With dabigacrine, for example, uh, you simply wait to the INR to get to two and then start uh, dabigatran. With ribaroxavan, it's three. Uh, with apixaban, it's 2.0, and with edoxaban, it's 2.5. So it's a little variable depending upon the drug, but in general, you simply withhold the warfarin until the INR gets to a certain range, and then simply implement the next daily dose uh, or BID dosing of the DOAC. That doesn't sound that complicated. It's, it's not, but for people who don't use these all the time, whether it's 2, 2.5, or 3, uh, it's worth just going on up to date and checking these things. Okay. So in your practice, uh, pretty much you're starting most patients who need anticoagulation on a DOAC at, the, at this point in time? Yes. Uh, for newly diagnosed AFib, uh, we are starting all patients in a DOAC. We 
basically think the evidence base is sufficiently robust to ask ourselves the question, why would we ever start warfarin when we have drugs that are as effective or more effective with a clinically important lower risk of intracranial bleeding? And that's a pretty big sea change in the past couple of years then, huh? Well, it is. It's one that one we could see coming because our colleagues in Europe who have had these drugs have made a similar transition. I think if you look at newly instituted anticoagulant therapy, uh, there is a major shift towards DOAX as opposed to warfarin in the United States. Okay. Well, thanks so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. A lot of information and we encourage clinicians who have access to the up-to-date pathways to search for the one titled Atrial Fibrillation Anticoagulation for Adults with Non-Valvular AF and use it in the office when deciding with a patient uh, whether to initiate treatment and what medication might be best. As with content uh, throughout UpToDate, we're maintaining these pathways by continually updating them as new information emerges or new drugs become available. And we hope that they're helpful to you in guiding you and your patients uh, to optimal therapy. Thanks again so much, Dr. Estes. My pleasure, Nancy. Thank you.